be wrong in some areas because, quite honestly, a lot of it jumbled together. So I have the basic outline. All right, the story opens with the arrival of Rosemary Foyt, um, who is a starlet, on the shores of the French Riviera in 1925. It's in the off-season. She's with her mother. She goes to the beach where she meets two groups, sort of a happy group, a tan established group, and a more boring group. The boring group approaches her, um, but she immediately singles out of the other group a, uh, a character who we come to learn is Dick Diver. And the story is really about his fall from grace. She instantly falls in love with him, and she kind of tells her mother that. She is sort of represented as this innocent ingenue starlet, um, and she seems to be unaware of her own magnetism. And through her, we get an idea of Dick's godlike aura. He has a party, and he invites all of the people that were on the beach, both, you know, sort of like the unhappy group and the happy group, and they don't seem to really like each other too much. In this party, we learn about a character named Tommy Barbin and his protection over the divers. Violet McKisco is, is the, one of the characters in the sort of out group. Her husband is Mr. McKisco is a, as an author and he's kind of billed as this sort of unlikable character who is a second rate author. And at the party, Violet sees something happen and we don't ever learn, we don't learn right away during this book what happens, but it seems to be uh, significant. Rosemary at this party tells Dick she loves him. And because Violet is trying to tell what happened that she saw at this party that seems to be damaging towards the divers. And then Tommy Barbin, who seems to have a protective quality over the, over the divers, he tries to silence Violet about telling what happened. There, become, there comes this duel, which seems very kind of strange when you're reading it because it's very old-fashioned to have a duel. And it becomes this sort of melodramatic sort of charade um, where they, they make sure that they're far enough apart so that nobody can actually get really hurt. Um, but McKisco is acting as though it's the end of the world, and they have this duel and nobody gets hurt, and that's kind of the end of that. Um, but during that time, Rosemary gets invited to Paris with the divers, and through this we continue to get this idea that Dick is this sort of godlike golden boy um, character, and she's totally infatuated with him. And she's somewhat infatuated with the whole the whole family, with Nicole, too. And she comes on to him. She wants to sleep with him, and he has this sort of noble response of like, no, you know, what would this do to Nicole? You love her. They're friends, too. And he also seems to realize that Rosemary is this sort of young, impressionable girl. Um, then they watch her, and this may be somewhat out of order, they watch this movie, Daddy's Girl, which is the movie that's kind of made Rosemary famous. She's this new rising star. And the, the term Daddy's Girl is kind of very obviously... It becomes a foreshadowing, but it's very obviously like this play on the fact that Dick Diver is could be the father of this young girl who we learned is 18 years old. So then we kind of hear about Rosemary's escapades through this guy named Collis Clay, and he describes this hot and heavy incident that occurred on a train. And so he's, he's relaying this story to Dick Diver, and it becomes clear that maybe she's not quite as innocent as we think, and Dick is like... Very jealous. And there's this phrase, uh, do you mind if I pull back the curtain that Collis Clay says while he's relaying a story? And this is repeated throughout the story and it kind of indicates that he's thinking about Rosemary and sort of filled with that consumption about her. So then we shift from Rosemary's point of view to Dick's. So the end of the season is happening and there's another character, Abe, who's like a friend who was on that beach. He is a friend of the tan group, the in group. 
and he is an alcoholic and we learn that he wasn't always this way, but that he kind of needs to get on a train and go or it's going to be sort of the end of him. And Nicole goes with him. And during this time, there is a woman on the train that she was going to talk to about something, but it turns out she was very distracted and it's because she was in a fight with her lover and she shoots the man and I believe she kills him. I'm not entirely sure about that, but she shoots this man and it's sort of this, this recurring theme of this kind of man that falls um, because of the love of a woman. We we learn more about Dick's savior complex here because he wants to help and Nicole is very sensible and so there's somebody else that can do that. Then we have another incident where there is the murder of a black man and it's involving a North and it just, it happens, we don't really know exactly who does what, but we, it happens that the man gets murdered in Rosemary's room and she is out and so they find the body in her bed and so Dick you know, moves in, he wants to sort of save her and keep her from this scandal that might come if she's associated with it. So they move and there's some racist sort of derogatory terms that come up in there. And towards the end of after this happens, then we find out then, then Rosemary sees Nicole in the bathroom having a mental breakdown. So this is sort of towards the end of book two. So we've started to learn a lot about Dick and his character and his sort of need to be the savior. And then we see that Rosemary is um or Nicole has some kind of mental breakdown and she said they say at the end that like now Rosemary realizes what Violet saw at this party that he, he wanted to protect the divers from you know sort of anybody knowing so then we go to book two and it kind of goes back in time and we learn more about Dick and what kind of person he was and how he was this sort of golden boy he grew up like a sort of an average guy in I think maybe Midwest and he went to Yale and he was a Rhodes Scholar and he was full of this promise and he wrote a book that which basically became sort of the site the the book of psychiatry that like is very well cited. And he works in this hospital and he he sees Nicole there. Nicole is a patient there that we learn. And um to make a very long story short, he's attracted to her right away because she's beautiful. But when she becomes sort of involved, when he becomes sort of involved with her, there's this idea that Nicole had transference, which like this sort of attachment to her, to her therapist, who is Dick. And at first they see it as very helpful. And then it becomes like, not only does Nicole have transference, but then Dick sort of falls in love with Nicole. And that becomes a problem. And we learn why she's at the hospital. Um, We first think it's just because she's schizophrenic, but then we learn that she was, that her father um, that she was, her mother died when she was very young and her father admits to having molested her. And so then that's sort of the, the daddy's girl thing comes in. And then we meet baby Warren, who is Nicole's sister, who does not know about this event. And she kind of, we learn about her character and, and the money that they have. And she kind of intimates that like, maybe if we buy her a doctor, this will be, this will be the way to keep her safe. And then it moves toward the direction of like, okay, Dick married her and he, he was sort of bought by them and in a way, um, although he does love her. So this begins the downfall of Dick, excuse me. So then we learn the time passes. They're married. They have two kids. During this time, Nicole has a couple more psychic breaks. Um, they buy a clinic with Nicole's money. Um, move away from the Riviera. They go to this place and he, be, he buys this clinic and he does work with these mental patients and she's there and she has mental breaks and there are some accusations which are untrue toward Dick about something and it kind of begins her jealous spiral and at the height of her jealousy they're at a carnival and she 
she freaks out and she has a psychic break and then they're driving home and she's obviously not well and she pulls the car off the road and just this dramatic scene the kids he sends the kids up the hill away and to make a long story short she he decides that he needs to break away and he leaves Nicole there she goes sort of to the mental hospital to be treated and he goes away then we learn that Abe North dies he was killed at a speakeasy which is like a sort of an underground bar and then we learned that his father dies. And during this time, we, we start to see things from Dick's point of view. And we learn that he realizes that he's lost himself somewhere. And we get this idea that he's never really had a full sense of self. And he, he was filled with all of his promise. And now he's not able to keep that up anymore. And his marriage to Nicole has cost him dearly because he was both husband and a psychiatrist. And as he travels, he comes across all these people like he learns that Abe dies and he runs into these other characters who, since time has passed, are the people from the past that we met earlier in book one. And everyone sort of changed and, and Dick is no longer that golden boy that he once was. And he sleeps with Rosemary. Then from there, this is like the end of him in a way. Then we return to the clinic and, and Nicole, the beginning of the end. And she, you know, she has an affair with Tommy Barbin. They realize that their marriage is just not working out and he, he is no longer a serious man. He loses the clinic. The people um, realize that he has sort of a drinking problem and she kind of goes off and marries Tommy Barbin and they get divorced and he um, goes into obscurity in New York and he, he becomes like a, a general practitioner and he writes papers and whatever, but he never finishes anything and he's sort of a washed up. And that's the end of the story. And I hope I did it some justice. So, I mean, the, the basic trajectory of the story that strikes me is there's this rich, crazy girl, right, <laughs> Nicole, yeah, uh, the, from the Warren family, which is like one of these rich American families, like uh, the Rockefellers or the, you know the Crown family in Chicago or something like that. She's basically molested by her father. She goes nuts as a result. You know, they send her over to a European sanitarium. Dick Diver works there. And, you know, he essentially the Warren family more or less buy him to be a husband to Nicole, more or less at the same time to be her psychiatrist. And I mean, chronologically, that's how it works. Yeah, he's bought, but at the same time, he definitely has this idea that he wants to save everyone. And he wants to, you know, over and over in the book, it says he wants to reflect back to people themselves in this way that makes them feel good and happy. And he really needs to be a savior in every situation. And so it seems as though he bought, they bought him, but it also seems as though he didn't have to be bought. That would have been, that's just sort of a byproduct. So I don't know. I feel like conflicted about that. Do you like a lot of people talk about it in terms of the money was his downfall and like, the, you know, he did this for the money. But I don't I don't think that was true at all. Also, I just have a question about his background. Wasn't you said he was from Ohio? No, northern New York. Buffalo. Buffalo. Oh, okay, okay. Well, no, he was he was from Connecticut, I thought. <laughs> no, he's from he's from Buffalo. I'm pretty sure. He's from Buffalo. Yeah. Oh, OK, so I thought he was like. I guess he was educated in Connecticut, and that's what that's what they were talking about when they said Connecticut. I think I said Midwestern because I think his father was like had these Midwestern values or something along those lines, and it was referred to at some point in the book. I mean, Great Lakes, I guess you could say. Is that the term Midwestern? Did that not come up at all in the book? I think oh. it ended up later in the book. I was skimming through, but uh, that was where he ended up settling. 
for a little while. But uh, I was yeah, just that... trying to determine if maybe there was some kind of a like a class ethic, you know, like strong, you know, no, there's definitely, values and the, you know, yeah, there's definitely that in the book. There's a whole theme of of class divide in the book, and that's there along with many other themes. I mean, it's it's a pretty you know complicated plot line. I find it exceedingly unlikely that he would have married Nicole. Nicole did not have money. If she didn't well, have know, that sort of sheen of money to her. I don't know if I agree with that. Oh, see, I, I totally disagree. I think he would have been. Yeah, I, I think agree. he liked the, the daddy's girl and the mental patient. Because remember the Iron Maiden around page 239? The the girl that was in, or in the mental uh, hospital who was covered in eczema who he, he he instantly, you know, saw her as this fragile being and he wanted to swoop her up in his arms like he did Nicole to kind of save her. Like he just definitely has that or to me, he has that idea of just wanting to be the hero. And so the fact that was she was just this vulnerable, really um kind of messed up girl that he could be the the daddy, so to speak, to the stable one, to her mental patient self, I think that was the draw. Yeah, but there's a, another reason, too, is he was always very drawn to very, very pretty, beautiful women. And Nicole was beautiful. Yeah. The way she's described was as shockingly beautiful as Rosemary is described. And he was always drawn to that. I don't know if I would buy it as he was bought, necessarily. Yeah. I think that that became something that he he became aware of later on. Yeah. But... I don't think that that was, uh, I mean, that might have been, quote unquote, babes or whatever, babies intention. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, on many levels. But I don't, I, from him, no, I think he actually fell in love with her, with Nicole. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I wonder, I, I don't know. If the money wasn't there, I don't know what it would have been like. Um, but it, it, it talks so much about him trying so hard to keep his independence and how he wouldn't you know, he didn't want to spend her money. And it was like kind of a big deal to him to try to, you know, he would make travel. his own money. Yeah. It, he, like when he would travel without her, he would travel, you know, the economy class and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So I don't know. He seemed to have issues around the fact that she had this much money and maybe he did feel like at one point he says something about being a gigolo. Yeah. But I think that was baby's baby's intention. She wanted to own him, and she did, really, yeah. you know. And that I think that that worked into it from Baby's point of view, because she was the one kind of what he called encaged Nicole, because Nicole was in mental hospitals for so long. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like I, I don't know. It just felt like Nicole was being cared for in a, or overseen in a very non-loving way by her sister. Mm-hmm. Nicole wanting to own him wanting him to stand still forever, encouraged any slackness on his part, and in multiplying ways, he was constantly inundated by a trickling of goods and money. Their actual eating holes, or sorry, their courtship, I should say, is she has an active part in it, and it's clear that she's trying to capture uh kind of big part rather than just be noticed by him. I yeah, well, be... he was kind of godlike, right? Like, like uh, Jennifer was referring to. So he had that aura about him. I just think that it's less of her trying to have his godlike attention and aura towards her, but rather I think Nicole's feeling was one of wanting control and ownership of Dick. That's how I read um, 
the results of their courtship. I forget what exactly it was, but like at once, you know, um, it was clearly flirtatious and charged, and they had the whole weird, you know, patient-doctor uh, relationship. But at a certain point, I think she smiled at them or touched them, or and then like it, the the passage was that she realized at that moment that she had him in her grasp. <laughs> yeah, that that comes up throughout the story where she really needs to have his full. Um, attention and she needs to know that, you know, she's the center of his world. And when that becomes threatened, when, when he is indicating in some way that he's not all consumed with her, she becomes like a jealous maniac, right? Yeah, so, but I don't think that's related to the money. Yeah, that's, that, the, that was what I was going to say was that I, I get the feeling of wanting to own him, but more on an emotional level. Emotional, I feel yeah. like. A, I think it is related to the money. I mean, I think that it's a element of trying to point out how the rich want to get the uh, the regard of the people who are lower down the socioeconomic strata. I think that is definitely a part of this. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it's clear uh, whether he knowingly knows it at the beginning or not, that's tor- a part of what torments Dick. I don't think he knows his clear relationship about uh, mm-hmm. his love with Nicole or the money aspect. I think that's clearly a tormenting factor for him. Seems like maybe you guys are trying to talk about like whether it's a sixty forty and in which way, uh, because obviously both things are going on here. But it's is there a dominance? Is that like the argument? Because I think that like both sides are recognized that there is money going on and there's obviously like psychosexual stuff going on. Yeah, but you know that's also a male female thing that was very you know and not only the rich poor thing, the very class divide. But this is back in the twenties and you know that. It was a male-female thing, too. And that probably bothered Dick as well. But, you know, that, you know, his wife was the one with the big money. But I really don't think, I never got a sense that Nicole was very focused in that way. She was mentally and emotionally kind of all over the place. Babe, her sister, though, different story. Yeah, I, go ahead. I was going to say, can you explain Dick's downfall and the things that he's going through in the second half of the book without reference to him considering himself a kind of sellout. Well, there's this, there's this line where, um, where he talks, I think, I think his dad, I think his dad is the one who supposedly said it. It's after his dad dies where he said he was one of those about whom it was said with smug finality in the Gilded Age, very much the gentleman, but not much get up and go about him. So he was full of promise. He was, he did complete something. He did have a lot of, get up and go, it seemed like, in the beginning. But because we do get the idea that he was quite the social uh, chameleon, like he could just make everybody feel good, I think that we get an, a sense in the very beginning that he doesn't have a really solid sense of who he is. And then as the, as the story goes on, he loses him. He, he realizes that he's kind of lost himself. And it seems as though the money becomes the problem for him to actually ever get anything done. Like, well, he's swallowed up by this life of leisure. Yeah, he is. Seems- I wanted to just follow up after you're not, not much get up and go about him to the following paragraph where uh, the last sentence, actually, of the chapter. Then he put in a call for Nicole and Zurich, remembering so many things as he waited and wishing he had always been as good as he intended to be. Right. And he wasn't. I mean, he was a drunk. He had drinking problems, serious drinking problems. Later in the story, like, I think he, yeah. Well, he wanted to be more than he never, ever was. He never was what he wanted to be, what he envisioned. And that aided him. You know, and it probably, ex- it became exacerbated when he married 
someone who had all this money, because again, back to that male-female conflict in the early part of the 19th century, where women just weren't supposed to be the ones with the money. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys are right in the sense that they, you know, this whole money thing seems to be the big issue. I know everybody says that. I just, my personal feeling when I read the book, Regardless of what any of the critiques say, which they all say that the money was a problem, I just see it differently. You know, I just have a different opinion and mine is probably incorrect. But the feeling I get is that this was Dick's trajectory. Like he started out at the highest point. He's like the guy who peaks in high school. Like he just peaked way early. Nicole was at the very bottom of where she could possibly start. She was in a mental hospital for Christ's sake. She couldn't go any lower than that. And to me, the the theme of the book was more about how in order for a woman in a man's world to get well, to, to succeed, to get better, it has to come at the cost of the man. The man has to be the vehicle by which she springs. I think they even say that, you know, and the money is there and the money is part of an issue and it's part of the vehicle by which, you know, she ascends and he declines. But she never fully really ascends. Kind of asshole barbarian guy. So and, this but, is. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So this is what the book has to say about Nicole. I mean, early on in page sixty-nine, Nicole was the product of much ingenuity and toil. For her sake, trains began their run at Chicago and traversed the round belly of the continent to California. Chicle factories fumed, and links and link belts grew link by link in factories. Men mixed toothpaste and vats and drew mouthwash out of copper hogshead. Girls canned tomatoes quickly in August or worked rudely at the five and tens on Christmas Eve. Half-breed Indians toiled on Brazilian coffee plantations and dreamers were muscled out of patent rights and new tractors. These were some of the people who gave a tithe to Nicole. And as the whole system swayed and thundered onward, it lent a feverish bloom to the processes of her as a whole, as wholesale buying. The flush of a fireman's face holding his post before a spreading blaze. Yeah, she, the world is, I think that's a commentary on America. Like that she's just like this big consumer and because of the way that she is with this sort of money that she has, this is why all these people kind of have their factories and their, she keeps that economy going. She's well, don't you think that he has anything to do with Dick? I mean, I, I, I do. I, I see, I mean, I understand that there is a relationship between the money and Dick. And he he's definitely not got that same money. But I just I, 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 I agree think with that you, his, I just think that his relationship with her it was saying that it's about money, it just is so reductionist to me. Like it's yeah, just, I he agree. is he's a, he's got these deep seated issues of I don't know, he lack of self confidence, I don't know what it is, but he's definitely feeling like he needs to be her savior. And that gives him a purpose. And it's like this immature and childish relationship that they have in which there's can be there's no way it can survive. Right. It It's too reliant upon the roles that they play in order for their relationship to be what it is. It needs her to be powerless and the patient and unwell. And it, and it needs for him to be godlike. And because of the money, because of the fact that she will eventually get her power because she is a powerful person in the sense that she has all this money and she has that like if she weren't if she didn't have money their relationship could probably go on forever with him being the, the savior and her not but because the money is thrown in there it's throws such a kink in things that he's like 
dwarfed by it and the whole the whole facade of their relationship falls apart because of the fact that you know she gets a little bit better and she has all this money and she has this control in the relationship which doesn't match up with his like needing to be her savior and all of that this book is about the downfall of dick diver and money is a symptom the money is or is it one of the causes Money plays a role for sure. Yeah, I just but think it's that not, it's not the whole thing. thing. It definitely there's more to it. Yeah. But I mean, it is interesting to think about what money. You know, what is the money about? What role does it play? What What is the point of it in the story? And what's interesting is that Fitzgerald himself never had money. He was always really? struggling. I did find that to be interesting. I didn't really know that about him because I just made assumptions. I think he's well off, but only struggling. I only remember seeing his, uh, like, a weekly budget, and it was to the effect of something like 20% of his money went to alcohol and entertaining guests. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of it went to pay for Zelda's mental health hospital stays. I mean that in a sense that, from a financial standpoint, I think they'd be very well off by today's standards were they not to live such a extravagant lifestyle yeah. and of course you have these additional things too. right <laughs> yeah i mean it totally feels like a you know a very privileged like oh no i can't afford the crystal glasses and oh i'm poor kind of yeah i mean their version of not well off is very no, different well yeah the version i mean my point being is that he was always struggling for money for various reasons like living extravagantly and paying for his wife's hospital bills yeah so yeah i mean i i see your point but uh, you know maybe that's why money took a role as it did in this particular book for him. Yeah, there's definitely, like, the class distinction is is there with, uh, you know, we've got, I think, Rosemary. I don't know if she has a lot of money, but she's certainly getting money at this point, and she's in this film. And so there's a lot of references about the male-female dynamic, and she's not really dependent on a man. And it talks about how she she can be different about things because of the fact that she doesn't have she doesn't require a man for her financial stability, that she's kind of got that. But at the same time, there's this great and terrible and, like, makes me so mad line. I'm trying to find it. Happy to exist in a man's world on page 67. The point of resemblance to each other. This is talking about Mary North, who's the wife of Abe North, the friend of Nicole and Dick Diver. Right, right. And then Rosemary and Nicole, who was the granddaughter of a self-made American capitalist. Um, and the granddaughter of a count and so they these people always come from these and rosemary was in the middle of the middle class catapulted by her mother into the uncharted heights of hollywood and it says their point of resemblance to each other and their difference from so many american women lay in the fact that they were all happy to exist in a man's world they preserved their individuality through men and not by opposition to them they would have they would have made good courtesans or good wives not by the accident of birth but through the greater accident of finding their man or not finding him so they have this you know, this idea that these women in the story exist through the men and by way of the men. And it so seems that like made me ill to read, but whatever. Well, he says a lot of things throughout this. Um, oh, God. Sexist <laughs> and sort of, um, oh, racist. Yeah, like, there was, what was that one that was like, she was like every woman. Oh, my God, I hated this one. Oh, God. Um, the one where she wants to have, oh, page 73. Like most women, she liked to be told how she should feel, and she liked oh, things telling her which things were ludicrous and which things were sad. Oh, but most God. of all, she wanted him to know how she loved him. Blah, 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 blah. I know. No, I have. Oh, yeah. I got that one, too. And I was just like, oh, my fucking God. Like most women, she liked to be told how she should feel. Like, is he an asshole? Like, is this Fitzgerald's point of view, and he believes this? Or is he ironically making his characters say this, or his, his you know, narrator say this 
as a way to highlight. I, I don't know. I think that part of it is that time. It's, you know, this no, is definitely that time, yeah. time. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I haven't read enough about Fitzgerald himself, so I don't know. But I don't know. Maybe somebody else knows. But I, I, it definitely is a part of that time. A lot of the sexist and, and racist stuff I was reading in the book. Well, I his think. granddaughter was it that gives the, um, very beginning the comfort or the introduction. Did you guys read that? That his, like, granddaughter or great great granddaughter or somebody wrote. And at the very end, she says, "Not sort of disappointed in his racism." I thought the whole like racism thing was a part of his dissolution, and it pointed towards the whole funny thing again. But he was this warm beacon of light, and after he progressed further and further down, like he became this drunken maniac that would use the racial slurs. Clearly, points to a certain sense of essence of classism, where he's now within this system. But he says racist things kind of early on. Didn't that dead body, yeah, the dead body happened in book one. And he said, oh, you know, don't be so upset about this is just an inward scrap. Totally degrading the fact that, like, we don't really care about this guy who died. He's just a black guy. Why would you care about him? And I thought that was pretty horrible. And he uses this word, the term, which I don't know if this this big word was actually, uh, or you know, a slur at that time. But it's not referring to Hispanic people, by the way. It's referring to people who don't speak English. But just on the whole the attitude and if it's sexism or just hated. I want to be generous. Yeah. I think the overall point with the sexism, and there's another line I have here very early on, about the McKiscos, uh, she says something, Violet McKisco says, I was just saying that Abe North may be a good swimmer, but he's a rock musician. Yes, agreed Kisco, grudgingly. Obviously, he had created his wife's world, and allowed for a few liberties in it. That last line, as far as in relationship, there's someone who's dominant and creates the reality for both people. Yeah. And it's a continuous theme between these couples and all relationships. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't like I don't like reading those lines. When I read them, of course, they are upsetting. But when you read the entire book, you certainly do not get the idea that he is. You kind of do get the idea that he's a little bit racist, but you don't get the idea that he's sexist. You, you are we talking about Fitzgerald? Um, whoever we're talking about, whenever we talk about the thoughts that are portrayed in this book, like, uh-huh. is that Fitzgerald? Is that the narrator? I don't know. Like, whoever says these things, because they're the narrator's point of view, but is that F. Scott Fitzgerald? Is that the point being that he says enough things that he portrays women to be very complex, and he does make commentary on the fact that it is a man's world, that there are some women that are happy to be living in, in the man's world by way of a man and, and the problems with that, but that there are some that are not, you know, that, that implies there are some that are not. So I wouldn't say it's sexist. I, I, I think anytime you say like most women, it's just never going to go over well. So <laughs> <laughs> that's never going to sound good. Yeah. But he's not wrong in that he, he comments on something where he, you know, that's true about some women. To me, that, that strikes really true, and to me, it seems like a very obvious thing. I mean, I can think of it in my own life, that of my parents, people I know very well. You can tell the dominant person who creates yeah. this reality. Yeah, and in this situation, what's interesting is that he portrays, well, I don't know, Mr. the McKiscos are a bit of an odd one, because they end up both being, like, Mr. McKisco becomes a better person. He becomes, I mean, he's always derivative in the way he writes and all of that, but he becomes a little bit more sure of himself, so he's not such a he doesn't have such a chip on his shoulder later on in the book. And then she, well, she kind of becomes ridiculous, I think, right? Because she's just the loving yeah. fame and glory that goes along with it. But, and I think a lot of the women become ridiculous if you think about it, because think about um, Abe North's wife, Mary. What the she, hell happened with her? 
I mean, she was crazy. Who was she married to? What was the guy? I can't remember his name. Yeah, it was like a prince, a Middle Eastern prince or something. And it's very weird how that turned out. She went on to receive this status. But it's like so ridiculous, right? And and is that just our point of view being modern readers that, or are we supposed to be thinking that this is a wonderful thing? Because she seemed like very vapid and ridiculous to me in the heart. Yeah, I don't know. And then also Nicole, it seems like she's better off than Dick at the end of the book. Not really. Like, I think that's the idea you're supposed to be left with is that she's better off than Dick, but she's with this. This guy, which I never have a good feeling about. I think Tommy uh, You know Barnett. what? Tell me, tell me about this guy. I, I, you know, I know maybe because I wasn't paying att- close enough attention, but what is his history? Because I didn't, I was like, wait, where did this guy come from again? It's some guy they met, that he met that I think Dick met somewhere. I don't know where, but it was, it was like a person he picked up along the way, seemed as though to me. Does anybody else know? Tom Barban is a French mercenary, right? He's a mercenary? Yeah, he's essentially a mercenary. I mean, I didn't late... know that. No, I did not catch yeah. that. Yeah, I Where mean, did you get one... that? Yeah, at the beginning it says he fought eight wars before eighteen. I don't know if that was like, uh, some ragged. Yeah, I knew or he that. was in the. I think I, I knew he was in the um the war, or he was involved in the military in some way. But I didn't know he was a mercenary. Like he was in the duel, as you mentioned. Yeah, well, he suggested. Oh, like yeah. He was a friend of the family. He was very protective over the family. And then at some point, you learn early on that he has a thing for Nicole. But it's kind of like all these people like both of the characters, Nicole, Nicole and Dick. And then I think Dick picks up on the fact that Tommy likes her. So he, he likes Tommy, but he has a little bit of dislike for him because of the fact that he realized, hey, he, he's into my wife. He just seems really rough around the edges, which is, you know, would be fine, except for he seems very, he just strikes me as like this controlling machismo guy, you know, that's like, no, you oh. can't go and see. See him like whenever at the end he wants to. She, Nicole kind of and yeah, he's splitting kind of, up. Right. She wants to go to him and talk to him or something, and he controls her. He's basically like, "No, stay here. It's fine. Leave it alone." Yeah, and he's she, the one that confronts Dick. And says your wife is not in love with you anymore. Exactly. She doesn't even do it herself. She's yeah. not even. She's not even a whole person. It's like she's just been passed down the line from like her father to Dick to now Tommy Barbin, and she's just never a full self. So. I'm not. Ex- I don't know that there's any final say on what we're talking about with with men and women here. None of them seem to come out on top. It's just the fact that there's a lot of discussion of war and trauma just seems to be that this book is about that. That there's just people are fucked up. <laughs> you know, yeah, we, did, we didn't even mention that. But uh, one of my favorite scenes uh, in the book was um, when they were in that uh, graveyard. I think in yep. the Battle of the Mar. And a woman was looking for the for the gravestone, and I think Dick Diver just recommended she put it anywhere because obviously they're not going to find it. And he convinced her somehow that that was a good idea. Uh, and she seems results. to be so happy that he did yeah. that. Yeah, it was like one of the best things Dick did this entire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I keep calling it a movie. <laughs> well, there is, there a is really a movie. movie. No, there is a movie. There is a movie. Oh, is there a movie? Yeah, it, and check, it, check. I don't know if you remember this guy. Well, anyway, it was made, I think, in the 60s or, okay. yeah, early 60s, and I think Jason Robards played uh, Dick Diver. I think he was... Oh, the, I'm definitely going to watch that. It, I wanted it, to watch Zelda after, after reading this, but I haven't started it yet. I'm just curious, Jennifer, uh, what led you to pick this um, <laughs> novel in particular? I, I'm not... Second guessing it. It's interesting. I mean, it's always been. I've always heard of it as being well regarded, and you know, I I don't. I think that Fitzgerald wrote good things other than The Great Gatsby. 
Um, you know, he has a number of good short stories. Short and stories, the, yeah. the crack up stuff is very interesting. Um, but, uh, Jennifer, what did, what led you to pick Tender as the Night? So I, re- I read, um, The Great Gatsby in high school and I don't really remember it. I just remember being sort of in love with the imagery of it all, glitz and glamour. And I wanted to read a romantic novel, quite frankly. That's what I wanted to read. I, and I wanted to read something by him because I remember the feeling I had when I read The Great Gatsby. But, um, wait, wait, know. let me just say one thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if there's one thing that jumped out of me, and let me tell you, this novel, there are a lot of problems with this novel <laughs> that I had. But the one thing that I think he does really beautifully is the love scenes. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm like a sucker for, like, I've read Pride and Prejudice 50 times just for the, ah! I am obsessed with that book and I love it. And so I'm, I just was like, oh, let me read this because this seems like it will have some of that in there. And it does. I was so taken with a couple of scenes between him and Rosemary. Yeah. And also between him and Nicole. Right. When they were young. Um, when they were young. And, but also when he talks about her illness, like, oh my God, my favorite line in the book. I'll get to that later. But I just thought, okay, I want to read something else by this guy. And, um, I, I have to say I was totally disappointed. I hated this book. <laughs> I thought it to be utterly depressing. And maybe because the whole theme of mental illness within the book and the idea of these sort of codependent and very unhealthy relationship we find ourselves in and just how depressing that can be and I ended up not really liking it. I felt like the novel was just it could it could go through another draft. Yeah, I, it I, needed I, a good editing. I felt like the first book where it's told from Rose I mean the basic structure of the book is that the first section uh is basically told from Rosemary's point of view and it kind of builds up the idea of Nick is this sort of great social butterfly, a sort of hero and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then it goes back in time to his career as a psychiatrist and getting to, to know Nicole and falling in love with her and et cetera. And the third book is kind of like his disillusion. Um, it kind of goes back to the present of the first book and goes beyond it and sees how he kind of falls apart and it struck me that the first part, when I was reading it, I was just like, who are these rich, like, fuckers on the south of France who are just, mm-hmm. like, so fucking tedious? It's like, and there's, like, a million of them. They, I mean, like, I literally yeah, had characters. to make, yeah, I had to make, like, a, I basically, like, listed them down and tried to keep track of them. Um, it's just struck me that, number one, the characterizations in the first part are a bit weak. And that it's just a bit long. I felt like if that first part was kind of punchier, like about 30 or 40 pages, more straight to the point, it would have been a stronger, more inviting book. And the other thing, but I think after that, I, after the whole business of how Dick Diver and Nicole kind of came together in the sanitarium, uh, I thought that was you know, I, I think from there on out, it's, it's a little bit more interesting. I had the exact same uh, thought process as you did when I first started. I'm like, oh, no, not another you know book about some rich assholes that I don't care about. Yeah. <laughs> and I just mentioned that I had the same idea that I kind of gradually got, got more and more uh, absorbed into it, where I realized it wasn't necessarily about the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but these, uh, these conflicts that seem to be intractable in this book. And as far as, you know, wanting to read a romantic book, that's good effort, but this is one of the saddest ones. Oh my gosh, <laughs> terrible. Most I should have known. I really should have known. <laughs> um, did, did I think it, that's the point, right, that it starts out, and you 
meet these characters who are very two-dimensional at first, and then you start to see the dark underbelly of what he experienced. I think what it's like Fitzgerald experienced in his life, which was, you know, on the outside, which we know to be true right now with the celebrities and their sort of glitterati situation happening, and you everybody wants to be them, and everybody looks up to them, and it's, they're so awesome and amazing, and then you learn how totally dysfunctional they are. Don't you think a part of, I just thought of this, so it might be uh, shallow, but uh, a part of the trajectory of the book was that everyone's life kind of falls apart in a certain way. But they're kind of relics of the past, in the sense of these people come from old money, or uh, what is it, Mary Norton's Mary Prince now, or Tommy Markman, who's this mercenary. And the one person, and maybe you disagree with, uh, Rosemary, who's this up-and-coming movie starlet, uh, seems to have some sort of hope going on. She's like the future, and all these other people are going to fall by the wayside. I, I can kind of see that. I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to see who's a redeeming person here. I don't think we're meant yeah. to really admire Dick in any real way, even if we oh, sometimes are. Yeah. Oh, really? I, I did. I did only because I don't think it was in there, but I did admire him. Probably because stuff I read into it, but I'm not sure that it was necessarily supposed to happen, but I felt like he just said such good intentions, and you know, it happens whenever you're. I feel like whenever you're one of these people that just doesn't really know who you are, it can go both ways for you. And it went the it went the bad way for him. Like he was, it could have gone a different way for him. He started out so well, and because he sort of fell in with the wrong group, he just got consumed by it. Like if he hadn't fallen in, maybe he was doomed to because of who he is. But if he hadn't fallen in with these sort of wealthy, dysfunctional people, he could have gone on to do great things. He seemed to have some nobility. Like, he, he seemed to have some... Like he uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, Jennifer, because I would have to say most of the sexist uh, comments and even and the racist comments seem to come from him. Yeah, but I, I sort of dismissed some of that as, like, I don't think... If this book were supposed to be about racism, then it would have been much more clear. I think it was just, like, maybe Fitzgerald was a little racist and that came out and it was not supposed to be a commentary. Like, he was not... I took it as being part of the times. But, well, but yeah, but, that, but the fact that um, as he you know gets worse and worse psychologically, he becomes apparently you know more and more racist. Um, yeah, you know that does suggest that it's like a mental weakness. Um, I mean, I think that's the kind of novel's considered view of it. It's it's a little bit mysterious. There are a number of common narrator makes that make it difficult. All the narration is kind of close over the shoulder sort of third indirect kind of discourse, right? Like, I, I kind of wonder, is this something that's going on in the person's head to some extent or not? His character is, um, I, I can't make it out. I think at the end of the book, when they're getting a divorce, Nicole calls him a coward. Uh, but what do you make of Dick's trajectory? Like, did he have a way out? The contingencies that they led him to this, and they're, like, you did the best you could. But it, it seems like it, it's hard to place why this happened to him. I remember this line from the novel, and I hope that somebody else can remember where it is because I just typed in a few keywords that I remember because it's not exact um, and tried to find it. can't find it anywhere. But there's this part where he, I feel like it's right around when his father died and, and Abe North died. <clears throat> and he says something about how you're kind of doomed to take on the egos of those that you've loved and you're only as complete as they are or you're only as sort of, do you remember that part? Anybody remember not, that part? Not offhand. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And it was, yeah. and I couldn't, and I was like, where, where is it? It's, it's, I tried it's to, a lot. Because we learned a little bit about his dad, right? And his dad was, what, like a, 
he wasn't a vicar, but what was he? He was like some kind of... No, he was. He was He was like a priest or a... Yeah, something, something like in a like church. church. Yeah, a rector or something. Rector, that's what it was. Yeah, and... Um, <clears throat> Wait, are you talking about this page, page 314? Yes. Oh, my God, thank you. It was as if for the remainder of his life he was condemned to carry with him the egos of certain people early met and early loved, and to be only as complete as they were complete themselves. Uh, there was some element of loneliness involved, so easy to be loved, so hard to love. That part I have highlighted. Yeah, it's That's so good, good because, because it talks about, to me, it talks about, you know, you're like the book is so much about youth and promise, right? Like the youth of when you're young, you're just so full of promise. You, you can only there's so much ahead of you and there's so much hope in you. And whatever happens to you at a certain point, kind of there are these very important things in your life that can sort of seal your fate. And it seems like because his dad and I still am not clear when in that part where it says, you know, not a lot of us get up and go. Did his dad say that to him? Did he get labeled as that when he was young? And then, you know, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that he self-sabotaged. I wasn't sure because he did actually complete a book. He did have, he did do things that were, were not just like, they were important. Like he went to Yale. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He Rhodes Scholar. Go. He became a doctor. Yeah, he became a doctor. He wrote the book that's like the referred to book in psychiatry. And because he... I don't know. He because he was attracted to this woman Nicole, who was a mental patient. And I mean, there's a lot of beautiful women in the world. Let's just say there's a lot of beautiful women in the world. And he could be attracted to many. He was not attracted to her beauty. Her beauty maybe struck him, but it was not just that, right? She needed to be this vulnerable thing that he had to take care of and that he had to save in order for him to fall in love. And that's the same. That's why he's so attracted to Rosemary too, right? She seems like this innocent, you know, naive. She doesn't even know her own. Like there's that one line where it says she'd only been recently allowed to think that she was, I don't know, fun to be around or something like that. It was such a great. Yeah. That, right. 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 Yeah. She had just learned that she was like, she didn't realize that she was this beautiful. Like she had been carefully curated by her mother and she didn't know her own power. And because she was this submissive character, both to her, you know, her mother was the person she was submissive to. Um, in this story, but he was attracted to that, right? He seemed to be attracted to her. Well, that elicited his desire to care for and help. Yeah, like he just needed to be like, and that's what, like in this, in whenever that woman in the train station kills the man, um, right. Hellas, I forget what the na- names are, but he immediately inserts himself in the situation and needs to help. And Nicole's like, dude, there's somebody else that can be way more help. Why are you going? He's like, well, I, I just need to go help. He just keeps wanting to do that. So that gets behind who he is, right? He's this person who needs to, it seems to me like he's this person who needs to create who he is through the views of others. So in every situation, he is making everyone feel good about themselves such that you're the nicest person I've ever met. You guys are the nicest couple because he leaves everyone with this great feeling about who they are. So he he's very aware of everybody's character and like even with McKisco. He said he kind of leaves him. He says something in the beginning about how he leaves him with um that he secured his ego. Basically, he left him with this sense of superiority that he really needed to walk away with so he could feel good. And that's his goal in every situation is to find out who everybody needs him to be to become that person and to leave them feeling like they are the center of his world in some way. And Nicole refers to that as being worked over. She's seen him work over these people many, many times. 
And that's his way. And then because he's constantly identifying or sort of figuring out who he is through other people, I don't know. That's just my, I'm going on and on, but it just sort of seems like that's who he is. You know, um, has anyone ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People by (laughs) Dale Carnegie? He seems to be that sort of person that Dale Carnegie thinks people should actually be. There's a funny quote on page 280 where someone says to him, that's something you do so well, Dick. You can keep a party moving by just a little sentence or saying here or a saying here or there. I think that's a wonderful talent. And Dick responds, it's a trick. It's a Um, trick, yeah. Yeah. Did anyone have any thoughts about the title, which comes from Ode to a Nightingale? Oh, to a nightingale is its own can of worms, but um, yeah. it's. I think that the basic idea of the poem is, or at least in that kind of part of the poem, um, where the phrase "tender as the night" occurs, sort of like through poetry, I am somehow commuting, communing with you, nightingale, and where you are through through the power of poetry I, I i can kind of imaginatively enter into where you are and where you are it's like tender is the night the uh, quote is tender is the night and happily the moon the queen moon is on the throne clustered round by all our starry days you know but in his reality then he says but here there is no light save what from heaven is is with the breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways god i'm bad at reciting poetry (laughs) (laughs) that's all right so so when you say why did he choose that particular why not oh nightingale why that particular phrase why do you think he chose that because i think that dick it's basically i'm sorry i hate to interrupt but i just want to say that there were other working titles uh the boy who killed his mother right the world's fair the malarkey case there were different working titles right I'm just trying to work through why he picked this last yeah. one. And, I mean, I, I sense it's that because Dick is kind of creating a fantasy world. Essentially, he's using the power of his creativity to kind of create a fantasy world. And, I mean, maybe that's a little bit too negative. I mean, the, the poem itself is a bit more positive. Keats's idea of, you know, how to access, you know, a world sort of transcendence through poetry but you know attached to this book it takes on a sort of dark resonance uh given that dick's basic nature is to kind of create a fantasy well i didn't really i i read a little bit about the um the poem and sort of the overall meaning that i thought other people said it had not not me because i honestly don't understand the poem at all um was that it was this poem that follows youth toward death. And I would I I was asking why you thought that because I really want to know in that poem, already with the tenders the night, what does that mean? Like is that what is that trying to say in terms of if we're following in the poem youth toward death, which I don't get at all by the way. If you read the poem, I'm like, I just don't but I have always felt that way about poetry. It just is beyond me a lot of times. I don't get it. I just like what does that mean? What why is the night tender? What is it about? And there's there's this part in in the book two where he's he's with Nicole and they're like on a bench and it's at night and she says something that it's alluded to in that book or in that in that portion where this specific period in time 
is held together by... Do you remember that part? In the poem, that it's interesting because the idea, you know, Keats is, you know, the narrator or the persona's uh, longing for transcendence is kind of fused with a longing for death. I mean, there's a line saying, Darkling I listen in, for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called them soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air of my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, etc., etc. So there's kind of like an idea of somehow the artificiality is somehow linked with the drive towards death, right? Like the artificiality of trying to create a fantasy world. I mean, I, maybe the yeah. reason, you know, is kind of leaning towards, like a drive towards death somehow. I don't know. I, well, I mean, there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of psych, psych, psychoanalysis and mention of Freud and Jung and all these people. And this time period, I believe, I believe the death drive was a little later, though. Was the death drive a little later? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not meaning to invoke the death drive. I, I'm kind of stumbling into that. Beyond the Pleasure Principle was in 1920, so this would have been something that was very in the air, I think, during that time. And I, I, I now that you say that, I could see that being a, a theme because he has every reason to, sur- to survive and to thrive, right? And so why would he be so self-destructive as to be a psychiatrist who knows how completely messed up it is to be involved in transference in the way that he is and end up marrying this patient, knowing that he's locked them both forever, a situation that can never come out it can never turn out well. He locks her into a position of child by marrying her because she has made him the father figure in this relationship, right? Like by her transference. So clearly he would have known that if he was a psychiatrist. And I think because it seems like the, Fitzgerald. No, the most fucked up people go into psychiatry. Well, that's, I mean, sure. But um I mean, I don't know that that's true or not. I'm not no, saying no, that, but I'm just saying. It but, it, but it does seem like it's a very self-destructive. But it's, um. I don't know enough about Fitzgerald's autobiography, but is that whole theme with the psychiatry and their specific relationship, maybe like his attempt to write this work of fiction and mm-hmm. uh, transfer whatever feelings he has from his relationship and his own alcoholism, like a last-ditch effort to transfer that away from him? They say this novel reflects the status of his marriage to Zelda and its breakdown. I mean, I yeah. think ultimately Fitzgerald didn't succeed in uh, casting off these demons or whatever. Yeah, I, I saw that he died when he was like forty, but I didn't see how he died. Did you? Did anybody read how he died? I I just never got to that part. Yeah, he had a heart attack. That's all I know. Oh, okay, all right. He was very young, like forty, forty something maybe. Forty four. Forty four. Forty four. Okay, yeah. I want to ask. It seemed it seemed okay. messy. Yeah, go ahead. This has nothing to do with what you talk about. <laughs> I have a question though. There are all these incidents or episodes that happen, like the duel. And the shooting and the train station, right? Mm-hmm. And another, I, there was another one, another, like, violent, and, and, and they don't seem necessarily tied to the plot or tied to what's going on. It's like they just happen. And it's the idea, what was the other one? There was another crazy, uh, wild thing. Oh, yeah, when Tommy and Nicole, I guess, are in that hotel room. Yeah, totally weird. I know. And there's all this insanity going on outside with the battleship and the people, the women downstairs. And, and I'm just wondering if these, and, but it just seems like these incidents or episodes happen and they're not tied intrinsically to what's going on in the story. I mean, honestly, I read this book the first time because I read it, you know, I read it through. And I did read it twice, but I read through it again. Because I was just like, I believe this is above my reading level. I have it. So, <laughs> they, they were all here. Second. 
the, the ship, okay, so the scene that you're referring to with the ship, so it's towards the end of the book, it's basically right. after, like, when they have the or around when Tommy Barbon says to Dick that she's not in love with you, fuck off, dude. Um, <laughs> and I, the reason why there's an American ship there, to so evoke some sort of, like, so one of, one of and the, the historical background of all of this is that Europe is kind of declining, right? And Americans are coming over and, like, spending their money and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, like, Americans are sending over the battleships and blah, 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 and... Yeah. I take it that somehow the battleship is supposed to be not a symbol, at least something, you know, an object correlative or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Like, it's really, it's a symbol of, of, you know, what's going on with Nicole, I guess. I mean, I it's, think that's that's the idea. I think so, too. I mean, I think there's just all of this war throughout, this mention of war, and the key dick is compared to Ulysses S. Grant, and there's definitely a theme of war, and it feels like this time period this post-World War One time period. You know how in Sula there was this correlative between the people in the book and it was a, a it was about the different relationships, but then it was also about the larger relationship of race in that time. Like everything is about these relationships and about trauma and about the aftermath of trauma, but also it's a larger commentary about, well, and I don't know if it is or not, but it seems like because he mentions war and all this business so much, it's a larger commentary about the aftermath of World War One and how everybody was kind of, you know, really had post-traumatic stress disorder after this. Uh-huh. I think it's is is my general the sense end, of the yeah. whole audit. Especially the, the, especially the, the rich. Yeah, especially yeah. the rich in, in Europe. There's a scene, I forget where it is, but it's like Tommy and some sort of Russian aristocrat that he got out of Russia in his mercenary work and just watching this Russian aristocrat is just hilarious. Yes, and uh, yeah, and you kind of get the idea that it's the end of all the, um, you know, those kinds of social classes that happen in Europe, but that's now because we have this Rosemary character, now it's really more about. It's being I replaced by so. the American aristocracy, right? Yeah, the American the, yeah, industrial exactly. aristocracy of, of which Nicole is a representative. Yeah, and she, well, Nicole is a representative, but she's still old money. So then there's this new, this, so the new class is the old money in Nicole, right? But then the new money in Rosemary or the new, the different kinds of class, the ones where you're, you've inherited it versus the one where you're self-made. And sort of the self-made people have to be a little bit more careful because they can fall. Whereas the people with old money just don't have to worry about it. They can be fucking lunatics and it's fine. That's true. That's like, that's the new money old distinction in America, but it's not the new money old money distinction in Europe. Europe. Right. Yeah, like and I, that European you know, era Europe, seems like it's we're all right? new money, right? Right. So, or at least, you know, the Nicoles of the world are all yes. new money. But they what? recreated it here in the U.S., right? Kind yeah. Of. Right, they they adopted, uh, there's a line in here, I forget where it is, but it was some sort of observation about how the rich in America took on the snobbishness of the English, but not even knowing why, right? Oh, like, yeah. whatever the function of snobbishness oh, was, I like that lost line. Them. I think uh, I remember that. Funny analogy, I have to say this, so that I don't, because it's not my favorite But line. is that the one about English was like a, England was like a rich man? Yeah, no, this is the one, I think. Laura's talking about England was like a rich man after a disastrous orgy who makes up to the household by chatting with them individually when it is obvious to them that he is only trying to get back his self-respect in order to usurp his form of power. I love that So that's like one I love of the that I think we would have lost if this was a better edited book because there's all these really insightful observations. Right. Uh, the one about madness was 
Does anybody have any that they want to share? Because I feel like I'm sharing with you right now. Yeah, check one of mine. A really a good one about madness. Yeah, sure. I thought this one was uh, fine about the, and this will this will have to stand in because I think that one of my, well, no, I might still have that other as my favorite. But this is about class and rosemary. It tied in earlier um, to what we were talking about, but this is it. It's it's early on. Her naivety responded wholeheartedly to the expensive simplicity of the divers. Uh, this is about their goods, all the things they had. She, uh, Rosemary bubbled with delight at the trunks, unaware of its complexity and its lack of innocence, unaware that it was all a selection of quality rather than quantity from the run of the world's bazaar, and that the simplicity of behavior also, the nursery-like peace and goodwill, the emphasis on the simpler virtues, was part of a desperate bargain with the gods and had been attained through struggles she could not have guessed at. Yeah. That was before we learn about Nicole's illness, right? That's right. One of the things that I really liked was when he's, it's on page 248, when he's kind of at the end of his rope with her, and they've had that whole carnival, which is in the Ferris wheel incident, and she drives him off the road. And he says, it was necessary to treat her with active and affirmative insistence, keeping the road to reality always open. Talking about dealing with um, a schizophrenic, making the road to escape harder going. But the brilliance, the versatility of madness is akin to the resourcefulness of water seeping through over and around the dike. And I like that because if you've ever struggled with like mental illness in any way, you kind of know that it just, it pops up in the most difficult places. It's like when you think that you've really got a handle on it, it finds its way into a situation and manages to take over. It's the resourcefulness of madness, I think was just very poignant. And I think he um, he describes that very well. You know, I want to read this about madness uh, that in reference to this novel. It's a secondary source, and geez, I can't remember where I got it from. I think it might have been from the Hopkins Review, John Hopkins University. It, it goes, the explanatory models for madness in the novel are complex. For Nicole and her father, mental illness is the plausible consequence of distressing events congruent with Freud's theories on trauma as a trigger for hysteria. Yet Dick Diver's madness is a moral condition. The pleasure mm-hmm. principle reigns in Dick's weakness for alcohol, youth, and beauty. That's true. He finds it increasingly difficult to reconcile his own quasi-incestual sexual impulses, particularly in relation to the virginal infantile actress Rosemary. But Dick's indulgence is is harnessed to an abrogation of social responsibility, especially in relation to work. He neglects his project on classifying psychoses and neuroses. His intellectualism goes to waste. He had been swallowed up like a gigolo and somehow permitted his arsenal to be locked up in the Warren Safety Deposit Vaults. A critique of abandoning work is a leitmotif in much of Fitzgerald's fiction and reaches its apotheosis here. For all the novel's commitment to modern themes of commercialism and voyeurism, Diver exhibits many of the familiar hallmarks of the Victorian doctor in literature. Reminiscent of, Bovary's, of Charles Bovary and Flaubert's Madame Bovary, he has his professional life prescribed by the social circumstances brought about by marrying, quote, out of his class. Like Tertius Lydgate in George Eliot's Middlemarch, he fails to show insight into the psyche of either his wife or himself in spite of being a member of a profession predicated on diagnostic skill. Also in common with his Victorian antecedents, the early promise of a brilliant career is never fulfilled. It all ends ruinously. 
I like that, 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 that indication that his madness is of a moral condition. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, yeah, I, I mean, one, one, I think a lot of his, I think a lot of the issue here is sort of what, sort of something to do with pride, right? Like, he feels like he has kind of lost his pride and is sort of, you know, is, he's no uh, longer a serious man. Yeah. yeah, he's like, um, there's a, lo- a lot of different psychologies. In, in Plato and Freud, you know, there's an idea of like a pleasure-seeking part and a glory-seeking part. They're not all, all these psychologists aren't saying the same thing, but you know, I think his you know glory-seeking part essentially began to feel ne- or like neglected or somehow like like I, I think that I mean, so just to put, just to make this a little bit more concrete on two thirty, maybe. Um, Nicole's sister says, "We own you, and the, and you'll admit it sooner or later. It is absurd to I'm keep hearing up." Hearing that sound again. Sorry, go ahead. All right, that just outside noises. So, baby says, uh, "We own you, and you'll admit it sooner or later. It is absurd to keep up the pretense of independence." And mm-hmm. his the narrator, I guess, explaining what he was thinking. Uh, it was in this is this this part really hits hard on the theme of like you know men versus women right but the narrator says it would be hundreds of years before any emergent amazons would which means like i guess modern women uh would ever grasp the fact that a man is vulnerable only in his pride but delicate as humpty dumpty once that is meddled with though some of them paid effect a cautious lip service where is that? Because I think we have it. Oh, no, no, it's okay. We have the same version. Okay, I found yeah. it. 2.30. I mean, isn't is the episode where uh, Dick gets shot and punches the uh, Italian detective in the face and then gets beat up and locked up? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he mentions it as a like a, a, a turning point in his life where he can't go back due to how that affected his pride. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, that's he's going to be a different person from that point on. And I think when I read that, it felt to me... Like, up until that point, and I may be getting my events out of order, but it seemed like up until that point, he was toying around with the idea that he completely lost himself. He knew that he had. He wasn't sure where he went awry. There seemed to be, like, maybe he could find himself, but then that happened, and because Baby rescues him, and he just kind of realizes, like, oh, my gosh, my life, this is not where I should be. Like, he just kind of realizes what a sellout he is and how he wasted all that youth and promise. Seems like it goes pretty downhill from there. So um, I don't want to. Uh, if someone else has anything to add, but one one thing I can't figure out is um, how this all started. And I know obviously the the opening of the book with Rosemary, there's some tension there. But I think uh, the next part of the book skips five. Is it like five years mm-hmm. until the next yeah. time uh, they meet? Yeah. And he doesn't actually take up like they don't actually have an affair until that time. There's some Correct. tension there. Mm-hmm. There is right. an episode. There is an episode um, at the uh, sanatorium where doesn't he like kiss a fifteen-year-old girl or something like that? Yeah, that was I weird. Think you're right. he, I think you're right. Yeah, he got. Well, he's he, he's accused of doing this, but he when it says he kisses her, it you don't really get the idea that like he kissed her, but you get the idea that he's innocent and he knows he's innocent, but that Nicole thinks he's not innocent. Did you guys get that feeling? He's very liberal with the kisses, I mean. <laughs> yeah. He's very liberal. But I didn't think it was that kind of kiss. I felt like he was like, you know, he did no, just go with her. The story was that she wanted to go into town, so he took her into town. And uh, whether it's true or not, 
there, a kiss happened there, and he didn't take it any further, of course. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, and then the mom, or the family comes and gets her and accuses him of sort of more than that, and he's like, he knows that he's innocent, he knows that he didn't really do anything. The way that the narrator describes it, it makes it clear that, like, he didn't. In my opinion, it makes it clear, and then I think it seems like Nicole doesn't believe it. And then there's also, that's different than the Iron Maiden, though, right? That's a different character than the whole, but that's right around all that time. She starts to become very suspicious of him, right? Or sort of, like, jealous and and that just sort of seals the fate there. Oh, no, I just to make sure the chronology is correct. And then after that, is it his father's death that sets him off to see Rosemary and actually pick, take up that affair again? Well, no, I don't think so. Let me see. I have all of these events, like, on post-its in order. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so page six, jealousy of the 15-year-old girl. Before that, he's having difficulty being a husband and a doctor. So then that whole event happens where she's at the fair. Then there's... Abe North dies, then he kind of reflects on losing himself, then his father dies, and I think he goes, see, I got lost where where he went, because I never, I never understood how he ended up back in Europe, quite honestly, I was like, well, he, first he was, went on a ship to visit his dad's grave, and then he ended up going through Naples, and then he saw Rosemary, and I, I don't think he went about seeking her, Did do you get that idea? Because I thought it was like, he just happened to see her. Yeah, I got a sense that he just happened to see her. Oh, but I, I don't, I don't, yeah, but I don't know if that's right. I'm not sure. I don't know if they were, yeah, it's it's like all these ghosts from the past came through his life. Like, we see the McKiscos on this. Right. Yeah, and I, I was a little bit unsure how he ended up in, from Naples into Italy. Spain? I don't know, somewhere. It's because, it's, isn't it because he went back home to his father's funeral, and then he went back via Italy. Well, first he leaves altogether, right? We know he leaves altogether um, because, basically, Nicole has gone nuts, and he needs a break, right? And then we learn that Abe North dies, and then we learn that his father dies. But he's already away from his clinic in that area during that time, but he's in Europe. And then he goes to America. He goes to New York because his father died. Right, because his father died, and he goes and visits the area where he grew up or whatever. Right. But then, where does he see, what's her face, uh, Rosemary? Rosemary, that, wait a minute, I'm there. I think it's 266, 265. Wait, what country are they in at this point? Uh, Steamship, uh, McKisco, Pier, uh, I don't know. I think she, doesn't he just run into Rosemary in Rome while she's yeah. shooting or something? I thought it was in Italy or something. Is it not yeah. Italy? Yeah, Rome. I don't know. Anyway, when it, oh well, that is Italy, but I thought it was Florence, and then um, well, he was in Naples, right? Yeah, that's the part where I was like, when did he? When did he leave there? That's the part where I got a little confused. I didn't know if you guys remember that. Mediterranean crossing. You know, it's all a blur when your life is falling to shit. You know, <laughs> True. one day you're in Naples, one day you're in Rome, and the next day you're in a fighting with like. Uh, but it's taxi cab driver or whatever. <laughs> then you see Rosemary. Oh, yeah, the grandeur that was wrong. The yeah. grandeur that was wrong. That's on yeah. page 268, 269, around there. Oh, okay. So the grandeur was Rome, and then later they talk about Florence, and I got confused. Okay, so, but that's, they're still in Italy, whatever. So they're in Italy, but how did they, how did he end up leaving and going back there? Is he just like on a European tour? He's like, I'm going to leave Switzerland, I'm going to. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he said he was going to go on a long trip, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think he went over to, to Germany and he got a, he gets news of his father dying. And so he yeah. goes over to America and he sees the funeral of his, of his father and then he comes back 
up through Italy. Okay. I think with the idea of going to see Rosemary, if I'm remembering correctly, like, so he goes to Rome, I forget, and he tries to meet up with Rosemary, and it doesn't, and it, you know, kind of, he kind of consummates it, it kind of doesn't go well either. I don't know. I mean, I think that's basically the trajectory. Yeah, well, that's the part where I was unsure, because it, it sounded like he had gone to see her. I didn't know how he knew where she was, number one. I know he talked to that guy, Collis, and he said she's here or whatever. But then when he saw her, he had that, he, he said something like, of all the people or something, and it seemed like he didn't know she was going to be there. So I, I don't know. I was just curious, because it means more if he's going to, like, seek out this woman versus if he's not because that would be a more like an even more self-destructive act I think which it seems like maybe that's what he was doing see I'm looking at this line in, in on page 269 270 depends on what version you have where it says that he's at uh, dick is at the bar for a gin and tonic hi dr diver uh, someone says and then it says only because of rosemary's presence in the hotel did dick place the oh, man yeah. immediately as Colin yeah. clay and then he says do you know rosemary's here collis asked and then dick says i ran into her then he says i was in florence and i heard she was here so i came down last week collis being rosemary's other potential suitor whatever uh, whatever for yeah. like ex-boyfriend or whatever from yeah her. right yeah this is what always gets me in these books these like turn of the century you know books this is not really turn of the century but you know these books where these rich people travel and it's like why did he run into all these people like do they just have like five places that they i mean europe's a big place and he runs into the mcgiscos and he runs into the you know he finds out tommy barvin died nearby you know it's like how big is the world that he keeps running into these people? and Or does he go to these specific places knowing that he's going to meet up with them? Does it that may be that there's just a general knowledge in the group of certain places that they all hang. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's, it a class, it's a class thing. I mean, frankly, yeah. you know, when my... My uh, my husband is, uh, you know, when he travel, he's Indian. He, when he travels in, when he goes to Bombay, he runs into this, you know, the same people that he went to school with, and it's largely just because he comes from a certain social strata, you know, in a, in a country of a billion people. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so he's hanging out in the same circles, and he runs into all these people. And I think the point really is like to com- compare and contrast what has happened for each set of people in the last five years while he's been kind of away in Switzerland in this remote location with this clinic that he's been running. And they've all, well, the Kiscos have moved on and they're doing well. And But the, what's her name? The North's not doing so I for, well. I, for, I forget. what. How did Abe North die? He was basically beat to death in a, in a sort of a, oh, right, a bar. Right, right. It's called a speakeasy bar, which is, you know, these... During Prohibition, there were these difficult-to-get-to right. bars, right. which I I don't really understand what happened to him exactly either, because they're not very developed, but it just seemed to be another echo of like, oh, the bad, you know, the husband kind of goes downhill with alcoholism, and, and the woman... He fought, he fought in the war, though, right? I yeah, he, yes, yeah, he fought yeah. in the war. Everybody fought in the war. That's kind of the point. Everybody was involved in the war, I think, somehow, right? Except for Dick, because yeah. he had, he was able with his, his golden boyness. To get out of it. Well, if you were if you were scoring high grades, a Rhodes Scholar, they would not take. You don't have to go to war, right? Like how how fucked you up get out of that? the draft? It's true though. <laughs> my dad did that. He got my dad did that. He got out of the draft because he had straight A's. It's crazy, but yeah, apparently. I don't. I mean, like, how do they defend that logic? That's just so I, crazy. I have no idea. I, it's it's so classist and awful. It's just awful. 
You're, you're not as educated, therefore you're disposable. Like, exactly. You know, exactly. Exactly. Just side note, it was the opposite with the uh, warriors in World War II and Japan. So apparently, like most of the uh, like bonsai fighters were incredibly sensitive artists and educated people who had like questions and philosophical problems with everything, but they were in the, in the war plans. Wow, fascinating. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean that's terrible. Anyway, I we I gotta have to go soon, so maybe we can head to, you know, favorite lines or not favorite lines. Well, I I would like to hear if what other people felt about the book. Did anybody actually really love the book or? <laughs> uh, I got it. I, I I had to really quickly read the last fifty pages today, uh, but I I started to really like it, and I I, I kind of want to go through the end of the book to see if I get a stronger uh, opinion about it. I did share the general sentiments of it being a deeply depre- deeply depressing book, though. So it, as far as like taking pleasure in reading it, a lot yeah. of it was just this like ooh my yeah. life. I have so little control of my life, and and everything over, is know. so awful. <laughs> Yeah, I just pray that whatever contingencies bring my, uh, you know, bring my life to a close are, are better than those that affect <laughs> <laughs> Like Jesus. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Rick Gatsby has a lot of the same themes in terms of kind of wanting to the tragedy of believing in a fantasy. But Greg Gatsby is fun and sort of alluring in a way that this book isn't. Dark, yeah. Yeah, this is sort of like the great Gatsby without the bells and whistles and fun and stuff like that. I think because he was writing about his his marriage to Zelda. I think that that's what was happening. This book took him 10 years to write. Yeah, he should and have it didn't him. start out he did, it didn't start out this way. It didn't start out the way it ended. And it was edited massively, but not by him. No, 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 no. no. He, he so only the had first his version, the first version. So he came out with two versions. The initial right. version, I think, is more or less what he had in mind originally, and then uh, later on, he had this idea of. Well, why don't I avoid the flashback structure? And yeah. at that point, he began to revise it, but he never actually completed revising it. So this guy named Malcolm right. Holy tried to complete it himself, and he came out with another version that was just told, told straight chronologically. It which doesn't even some... start with Rosemary. It starts in the middle, like when yeah. our book two starts, yeah. Yeah, and I think that isn't a good idea either, because I think Fitzgerald's initial impulse of trying to build Dick up through by presenting Rosemary's him eyes. Rosemary's eyes was I think that was a good idea. But I yeah. just think it went on for too long and it I think that he just should have tried to draw these this motley of, of rich, you know, expatriates yeah. a little bit more clearly. Like they're just kind of floating in and out of the scenes and I and you barely, yeah. they barely register. You, like you could have done without a lot of the scenes. Like you could have done without the, even though that was your favorite safari, the war scene with the, you could have done without that. You could have done without the part where they go to this random party, him and Rosemary, and he says, you won't like any of the people here. That was like totally useless. There seems like a lot of scenes they could have cut out. Do you think uh, Dick is Fitzgerald? I'm sure every writer I think it's, well, like it's a critical no, reflection uh, upon himself. I think yeah. he's he's not like presenting this guy as a bid for sympathy. I think he's presenting this guy as this is my. It's almost like a tragic vision of himself. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about him very well uh, in terms of his biography, but and I but I do know I'm aware of the difficulties of their marriage and the difficulties Zelda had, but. I'm just wondering if Fitzgerald had that quality about him where, you know, kind of 
stepped back and just tried to take care of the situation, whatever, you know, like that he wasn't, I don't know, do you get that sense about him, what you know about him, that he wasn't like, you know, that he was more like Dick in that sense that he sort of tried to take care and make other people happy, but not himself? I do get that feeling personally in a, in a small way, but I think for him to be able to write this book with such a an awareness of all of that, he, he has to be more aware of himself, right, as a human being. So he could never be Dick Diver because he can portray Dick Diver. Dick Diver. And, and, and I also have a suspicion that he's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about a certain sort of slice of society, and that slice of society is sort of like people who basically come from the middle class but are trying to live upper-class lives. Mm-hmm. That there are basically people pleasers. I mean, I can totally see, I mean, look, in New York, I can see this sort of slice of, you know, the, the world very clearly that it's a sort of middle class person who's trying to make rich people happy. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. So I, that's my sense of who he is, basically. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say? I just had a question that I think maybe at the risk of expanding the conversation, or maybe you should, uh, you know, feel free to just give a last line and opt out. Maybe this is quick, but could we, is this like a comedy, a tragedy, or like a drama? Like, is there like something that Dick did to make it like a tragic thing that like, oh, well, that's what you did and it set things in motion? Or is it just like a dramatization of forces? You know, is this some kind of just inevitable consequence of the way these people are set up? Or is this... I don't know, some kind of take down people with like circumstances that I, I, I don't know what would I make think it a comedy. I think it's definitely a tragedy because we yeah, absolutely, in my opinion, we absolutely have a tragic hero. Absolutely. We have these flaws that are, that are specifically related to Dick Diver. He has the God complex, not the God complex, the savior complex. He has, you know, all his particular flaws. Which lead to his demise. And that to me is a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I definitely think so. I agree with that. And I don't know, but I think the rest of the, it's like Dick Diver's story and everybody else is kind of in it and they're not really developed fully. You know, we don't really get a full development. But you know, what, of you, know what's inter- you know what's interesting is I didn't have that sense in the first section of the book. And I've read that some people have, have perceived that first section of the book, which is all about rosemary and diving and, you know, the beach and all that stuff. That um that in and of itself is kind of its own nov- novella. It could be, actually be separate. <laughs> um, but I, when I read it, I I didn't get a sense that this was like all Dick Diver. I got that at the, reading the second section where it goes you know back into him meeting Nicole and all of that. I got I, I thought it was more of a what is this uh you know weird little relationship happening that may or may not happen between this you know older man and this younger woman and all of the. Mm-hmm. I just want to throw this out there. Does anyone have a sense that the mom of Rosemary is this really subtle way almost pimping out Rosemary? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. She was very creepy to me. It was very creepy. That whole relationship was like, to me, alluded to the fact that maybe the father, not maybe, but definitely the father of Nicole, what's his name? Whatever, Warren, Mr. Warren, Melissa's daughter and uses her in this most horrible way after the death of his wife. But that I think in its own way, her treatment of her daughter and her manipulation of her daughter 
is equally as sort of like despicable. Like she's like a very she would have been an interesting character, I think, to flesh out more, but she wasn't really all that prominent. So is that more I in think, the second? Oh, no, I think that she's fleshed out in the movie. Oh, is she? Oh, I gotta I watch the movie so. then. Yeah, that's what I, I read. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nathan. Oh no, I, I just that uh, I, I, maybe I wouldn't know, um, but maybe or maybe I just had a different impression, and I'm just being naive. But she seemed really protective of her. My read of it was that she was a baby. She knew how bad the world could be and tried to give her daughter a chance to go up against it, but had made a protective bubble around her that now she was kind of, you know, like letting her come yeah. out of the nest and you trying get to that push thing. her towards being an independent person now, but hoping that she was armed with enough stuff to not take up. Like, there was this one line that I had in um, that her, just uh, Rosemary's awareness seemed like something that maybe she was armed with from her mother. It was that, like, when the guy looked her up and down a couple of times, she felt the superiority because she realized that she was being appreciated as property, but knew that as the owner of that property, she could take advantage. And I think that goes in that system of work, of being independent, and or being sufficient through men, not against them, and an awareness of that like position, just an awareness of that position is what her mother gave her. Otherwise, someone else would be like, "Oh, this person really likes me," naively, you know, and wouldn't recognize that maybe she should haggle for the ogling that she's going to be submitted to. Yeah, I had a more sympathetic view because uh, I didn't see it didn't seem like. Um, because cause she kind of left the story after the first section, mostly. It didn't seem like she continued to be this overbearing force, and that she used her two husbands' deaths and their money just to elevate her daughter's uh, stature in life. Here's a quote. So when Rose... This is Rosemary thinking. It's on page 39. So when she had seen approval of Dick Diver in her mother's face, it meant that she... That he was the real thing. It meant permission to go as far as she could. Say that again one more time. Okay, page 39. So when she, i.e. Rosemary, had seen approval of Dick Diver in her mother's face, it meant that he was, quote, the real thing, close quote. It meant permission to go as far as she could. Yeah. Just as implica- I mean, it's just implying stuff. I don't... It just feels like she's pimping out. Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, I, I take it that it's part of the mom's... So I think, like, the mom is kind of social climbing here, and she's thinking, like, oh, I can get... Like, she 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 doesn't know the arrangement, I think, between Dick Diver and Nicole. She just think of, thinks as Dick Diver is this rich guy. And, you know, I think that's basically what her own kind of thinking is, maybe not even on a conscious level, but I think that that's the element of pimping out Rosemary to Diver, uh, is all about is basically the social climbing. Yeah, there was that line, and I'm trying to look in my notes and see where it was, um, where she says something about, you know, like a woman and what a woman needs to do. It's describing, it goes into a description of, of Miss Spears, of, her name is Elsie Spears or something like that. And it says she, she wouldn't have an idea about cruelty, and I can't, do you remember that line? What was it again? It was talking about, it was describing Elsie Spears. And like he said, he could never have made her up. Uh, he could have made up he, the part where he talks about how he could have made up um, the character of Rosemary, but he could never have made up her mother. Remember that part? Yeah, page. Uh, I think it's two thirteen. Hold on. Two thirteen. Okay, so then. Okay, so then on page two twelve. So wait, what's the quote? Yeah, he saw so the, no. Provi- oh, go ahead. You got it. Well, that's a different one. I okay. was just. I just remember. 
remember it in my head, but now I've got now that you show me the page, I remember it was close to that. You have made up Rosemary. You yeah, never so that's, made up her mother. Right, and so on the page before that, he talks about, he says, um, he saw that no provision had been made for him or for Nicole in Miss Spears' plans, and he saw that her amorality sprang from the conditions of her own withdrawal. It was her right, the pension on which her emotions had retired, Women are necessarily capable of almost anything in their struggle for survival and can scarcely be convicted of such man-made crimes as cruelty. Yeah, that's awesome. So long as the shuffle of love and pain went on within proper walls, Miss Spears could view it with as much detachment and humor as a eunuch. She had not even allowed for the possibility of Rosemary's being damaged. Or was she certain that she couldn't be? And that's the part where it is in, like, um, Cesari, I think, you're the one that said, you know, maybe she had kind of made sure to buffer her against these things. I don't know who said that, but, you know, it's unclear to me whether or not her her mom cares about her or not. It's, it's like a little, I think she does, but she's so worried about her own survival that she kind of creates this girl. And she doesn't, it's like that twisted kind of love, um, you know, between a, a, a parent and a child where it's like you kind of harm the <laughs> child, but you're doing it so they can live, you know. Yeah, and I I wonder, maybe this is a distinction that's meaningful, like, was she pimping her daughter, or was she helping her be pimp? I think she was, like, one of those people who can understand the ways of the world, and was like, this is how this chick can survive. This is the world we live in. Let me give you the skills that you need in order to be... Yeah, that's what I I mean. Independent, like, so so that you can be a person that doesn't have to, you know, rely on... A man. You can live in a man's world, but you don't necessarily have to be reliant on the financial security of a man. Yeah, I, I, I feel like the, the unconscious, uh, like, other hope is that maybe you can figure out another way once you get somewhere. Like, this yeah. is all I know how to do right now, but maybe you can, in your own time, get out another way. But I don't yes. know if that's conscious. You know, I just think that's see- like the faint hope of a parent. You know, if I can presume not having children. Uh, totally. I, I think it, it, it's not as, um, I don't think it was as though uh, she was clearly pimping out her daughter in the effort of going to fancier parties later in life or something like that, right? Her best determination of how to give her daughter the skills to survive and thrive in life, right? Whether they were yeah. right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's like, have you ever heard that country song by Reba McIntyre, Fancy? Oh, yeah. oh my gosh, you should read the lyrics to that. It's like, you know, it's all for the good. I mean, it's in the hope of, it's like she's living in a man's world that she knows what happens, and I don't think she's trying to do it in a bad way, but it certainly comes across that way. I mean, yeah, it's not like the uh, the prostitute pimp in a uh, One Hundred Years of Solitude who like <laughs> increased her, you know, for the crime of accidentally burning down something, you know, has been consigned to a life of endless prostitution. Right. Yeah. Though in its own way, I mean, that's a different material circumstance, and so the values are different there, you know, um, to this one woman, you know. Yeah, anyway, that's it's a, it's a different measurement, but that's, like, obviously exploitative in another way, without the care and concern. There's also this whole um, this whole theme of acting throughout, and they talk, refer to themselves as acting, and like, there's even one part where he says, it was Rosemary's time to cry, so she did. Kind of like it's a scene in a movie, and uh, this is the part where she cries, and this is the part where it's like, Everybody's just playing their role, and this sort of feels a little bit like Rosemary's playing certain roles so that she can get where she needs to get, and everybody does that to a certain extent. Yeah, I remember that scene specifically. You know, Rosemary, I think, does come off as, like, the most sympathetic because she really does have the feelings. Like, in that moment, recognizing the acting, she realized that she 
had been like kissed seriously and never liked it in the movies, but that's because she had never realized what it was about um, until now. And she realized that she, if she was in that role now, she was going to throw herself into it, I think was the line or something. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so, um, are we good? Do we have last lines? Uh, go for it. So on page 253, there's just a small observation. The following part of Dick's mind was made up souvenirs of his boyhood, yet in that somewhat littered five and ten, he had managed to keep alive the low, painful fire of intelligence. It's, it's particularly the, uh, the phrase, the tawdry souvenirs of, of his boyhood. I like the painful intelligence part. Yeah, they're both good. Yeah, there's a reference to um, this adolescent story writer, or, uh, an author who writes adolescent. There were a lot of references book too by the way that i was like i have no idea i don't know what the arbuckle scandal was i had to go look that up i don't know what this yeah. author who writes about adolescent boys but they there definitely is that um kind of theme about like the boy that never grew up kind of thing did you get that sense throughout the story yeah i think that's i have a short one okay. and this is just i think uh nicole kind of reminiscing on their relationship but i think it's tragic in a certain way it's on page 176 isn't it funny and lonely being together dick place to go except close shall we just love and love but i love the most and i can tell when you're away from me even a little hmm. i'm sorry even the what even a little even a little yeah that's sweet here's the romance jennifer <laughs> i know there i mean there's some okay so i actually think it might not be on 176 for us um laura if you're trying to find that quote no that's all right i i, I, was, I don't know where it is yeah i was i remember that he it, was because cesari always takes my lines oh so <laughs> Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say mine then before before you take mine. It, I was thinking he was gonna take mine for a second too. Um, it's on page 260, and the reason I like this line, and the reason no, I no like wait no <laughs> no no no, it's, the I reason I like my this line, line, and it's on page 260. That's hysterical. Is because I like leading up to it, where you know he's remembering Nicole, and he talks about how he wants to remember her in this way, and and I, I this is why I felt a lot of empathy for Dick. He says, so he's remembering this time, and she said, think of how you love me, she whispered. I don't ask you to love me always like this, but I ask you to remember, somewhere inside me, there will always be the person I am tonight. And is that your line? That's my line. It's so good, right? Oh, my God. It was so tragic. This is the only time I, like, burst into tears when I read that. I know. I love that line. And I think it's because, I don't know, you know, in relationships, you... You're the best of yourself, and you're the absolute worst of yourself. And well, yeah, yeah. And as time fades and you move on, you do tend to remember, hopefully, the yeah. best. Those moments. Best, yeah. Oh. <laughs> all right, then I'm going to make it very complicated. <laughs> First of all, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you sort of, not necessarily a favorite line, but sort of, sort of, sort of a favorite line. Favorite moment. Um, but I'm also going to mention that the pro- I have to say one of my all-time favorite lines is actually a line not in this book, but about Fitzgerald's writing. And it's by um, R.W.B. Lewis, who is a, a literary scholar. And he said, Fitzgerald's style is not intended to call attention to itself, he said. And then he said, his words, Fitzgerald's words, are never in love with themselves. And I got a real sense of that reading this book. And I'll give you an example of one. This is a line from page 268. And this happens throughout the book. I read so many lines, and I definitely felt that what he said about how Fitzgerald's words are never in love with themselves. 
Um, this is one. This is on page 268 when um, I think uh, Dick is at the hotel and uh, and he's seeing Rosemary come over. And he says, as she came across the lobby, her beauty, all groomed, looked like a young horse dosed with black seed oil and hoofs varnished, shocked him awake. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, that's very intense imagery, but what? And so that to me, that to me reflected what Lewis said about how Fitzgerald's words are not in love with themselves. That felt like they were really, you know, fighting each other there. But anyway, since Jennifer took my line, I'm going to refer to the end of, it's page 276. It's the last paragraph in the chapter, and let me read it to you. Dick and Rosemary had luncheon at the Castello dei Cesari, Cesari, a splendid restaurant in a high-terraced villa overlooking the ruined forum of an undetermined period of the decadence. Rosemary took a cocktail and a little wine, and Dick took enough so that his feeling of dissatisfaction left him. Afterward, they drove back to the hotel, all flushed and happy in a sort of exalted quiet. She wanted to be taken, and she was. And what had begun with a childish infatuation on a beach at the beginning of the book was accomplished at last. Finally. And I have to say, maybe it's the way that the pages were laid out on my Kindle, but I was reading it. And it was like she wanted to be taken, and she was. And what had begun with a child infatuation, childish infatuation on a beach turned the page was accomplished at last. And it hit me, and I was like, whoa, at last? Here we are at page 276. Anyway, I mean, because to me, that was just like an attention that started very early and just continued throughout, you know, the reading of the book. But my point being, I mean, in terms of favorite line, Jennifer took it. But like I say, I gave an example of how his words are not in love with themselves. And I really liked that scene that really it just hit me the way that played yeah. out where it was finally they got to sleep together. They really are reflections of each other to some extent. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, they're both kind of striver types who are trying to move towards some sort of idealized thing. Obviously, it ends worse for Diver. Uh, Rosemary, luckily, their little affair kind of falls apart, but it, it, you can see how there, there's a fair number of things that kind of echo and reverberate in this book. It's, you know, the yeah. Rosemary Diver thing is one of them. But I do want to say, I, I cannot say that I love this book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't say that I love this book. I, what I did love, and because being a writer, I, you know, when you're reading and you're a writer, you're always like sucking in uh, gems there are in front of you and there are some phenomenal lines that definitely jumped out throughout and plus i want to add something else i hated the way it ended that last chapter needs to be fucking cut out and the way it should end i like the let's say go on but i like all right let me explain to you why it doesn't work the last chapter is about how dr diver is up in new york whatever and it and the last line that big about last line says Nathan and Cesario will tell you. Last line of this book is perhaps she so liked to think his career was biting. This is Nicole thinking about Dick. Perhaps she so liked to think his career was biting its time again, like Grant's Galena. His latest note was postmarked from Hornell, New York, which is in some distance from Geneva and a very small town. In any case, he's almost certainly in that section of the country in one town or another. I mean, what? To me, That's a very, great last line. No, no. That is. No, so and, the reason why no, it's no, no, no. getting into her mind of he's kind of, number one, he's kind of fading into anonymity. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, it's just remarkable that, like, this is basically how she ended up 
thinking of him. He's kind of this ghost in one town or another. No, you're wrong. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Go go back to the previous chapter and look at the last line of the previous chapter. I must go to him. Nicole got to her knees. She's with Tommy. No, you're not, said Tommy, pulling her down firmly. Let well enough alone. Done. End of yeah. <laughs> You think it should have been done there? Absolutely. Well, right. because you want to believe that he goes on and isn't like left in obscurity and that she's not. No, I want to go. I want to end with she's still in love with him. Yes, you want the happy ending. That's why it's not a happy ending. Well, I mean, it's not even that. It's not. It's it's a complicated ending. But it's an ambiguous ending. I just feel like the ending of that last chapter just was like weak. It was weak. Nail in the coffin. I mean, if you had left it at page four hundred and left it at chapter what um, twelve. Then you would have gotten a more ambiguous ending. Right. And you would have wondered maybe they, you know, she eventually goes back to him and they continue in their dysfunctional relationship. But now you just see, like, there is no denying he has. Yeah, but gone the, the fact downhill. that they got, they got divorced. I mean, it's all very clear that it is, he's hit the bottom. You know what I'm saying? I just don't, I just feel like, hey, if you wanted to end with that real last chapter, chapter 13 or whatever it was, it just, the way it ended in terms of the writing, I just feel it could have been better. Yeah. I don't know, there's something extra sad when uh, they mentioned that he had an unsuccessful tryst with a grocery store clerk. And yeah. Guy be back. Yeah, and right. Extra. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that too. That. I was on the side of I was on the side of loving. I'm like, ah oh, man, you know, <laughs> definitely a deep deep dive for, for Dick Diver there. <laughs> <laughs> Figure it out. His name. His name. Yeah. Oh no, his name is definitely. I'm not sure why Dick, but I've got my own. He's a dick, and he takes a dive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't think he was a dick, though. I did. I definitely did. I thought he was. No, he, had, whole, he had his dick moments. I think it was just an ode to all of the incestuous sexual perversion that's in this book and how very disturbing. I think he had a lot of funny lines, like the one about manners, good manners. Remember that one? I don't know oh. if everybody given their last one. Um, good manners are admission that everybody is so tender that they have to be handled with gloves. Now, human respect, respect, you don't call a man a coward or a liar lightly. But if you spend your life sparing people's feelings and feeding their vanity, you get so you can't distinguish. You can't what distinguish should, respect. Yeah. What should be respected in them. Like he's got yeah. a lot of really insightful comments about yeah. manners and yeah. pity and different things like that. So overall verdict is it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Cesare, did you give your last line? Yeah, yes, he did. did. Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. It was short. Would anybody like to recommend anything? Um, Wait, Nathan, don't you have a last line? Uh, no, I, I'll, I'll read this. Uh, that this cruelty. Hold on, hold on. This is great. This is this is this is one. It came up. It's my favorite now. Women are necessarily capable of almost anything in their struggle for survival, and can scarcely be convicted of such man-made crimes as cruelty. 